Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Do you feel alone? Struggling to find the work that you love and earn the fees that you deserve? Well, we can help. Entree Architect Academy is an educational program with monthly business training from top experts and a thriving community of passionate, supportive, small firm entrepreneur architects just like you. Enrollment is open. Come join us and build a better business. Visit EntreeArchitect.com for more information. You're listening to Entree Architect Podcast, episode 136. Welcome back to the Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, whether you're in the process of launching a startup, or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. When did you discover architecture? At what age did you learn that architecture was something that you could do as a profession? When did you decide to become an architect? What inspired you? Why did you choose to become an architect? Those are questions that I ask every guest here at Entree Architect Podcast. I find the answers to these questions so inspirational and interesting. Were there places, were there people in your life that guided you or inspired you to make a difference through buildings? This week at Entree Architect Podcast, we dive deep into one entrepreneur architect's story. 
She shares her early influences, her inspirations, her passions, and her reconsideration of her entire life plan. This week, the journey to design a thrivable home with architect Stacia Hood. This episode of the Entree Architect podcast is sponsored by FreshBooks, the easiest way to send invoices, manage expenses, and track your time. Learn more at freshbooks.com slash architect. Stacia Hood, welcome to the Entree Architect podcast. Thank you for having me here. It's yeah. great to be here. It's great having you here. I, uh, you and I connected through the world of internet. Um, actually, the first place you introduced yourself to me uh, was at our Entree Architect meetup in uh, in Philadelphia at the AIA convention. And you started talking about all the things that I love, uh, sort of talking about um, uh, uh, you know, all these different web personalities that we both follow. And uh, it was a, it was a very interesting conversation. I'm like, this is somebody that I need to connect with. And we've connected with since then offline. Well, actually, it was online, but off public line. We talked a little bit about who you are and what you're doing. And I'm like, this has got to be somebody we have to get on the podcast because she has so much to share. So thank you very much for being here. Yes. Um, have, go ahead. Can I just say I was so excited to meet somebody who was in this world of entrepreneurs and architects because I had been in this world and these circles of people but really hadn't come across my archi- the architects yeah. that were in this world. So it was that meetup was an exciting opportunity for me yeah, to it's, connect with it's people. It's a rare breed that uh, when you say Jonathan Fields to an architect and you know who he is, it's like, <laughs> yes, yeah. a kindred spirit. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you don't know who Jonathan Fields is, go check him out. Um, you should know who he is. Uh, he has a great, uh, great platform. Um, and maybe uh, Stacia, Stacia, sorry, uh, will talk to us about uh, about that a little bit. Before we get into any of that, uh, I'd love to start with your origin story. I want you to go back to where you discovered architecture, uh, learned what that was, and, and uh, what influenced you to become an architect, and give us that that story of your journey to where you find yourself today. Uh, my story. I'm one of those people that knew um, in the second grade that I wanted to be an architect. That's an early one. It was That's yeah. It was early. early. That might be the I'm, earliest one yet. I have I have books of playhouse designs that I would draw, and I used to invite kids in the neighborhood over to my house to design houses and playhouses, and a lot of times they would look at me sideways, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I spent my summers designing, and I was into gymnastics, I've always loved physics, and I've always loved architecture, and so, you know, I drew some pretty elaborate playhouses in my early days, they all had... Um, elevators, dumbbell waiter style elevators that I would design and balance beams. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. And then in the fourth grade, um, we moved to a small um, village in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And I was born and raised in Oregon. So it was quite a culture shock. And I went to a school with 18 kids. Wow. Um, the, whole, kindergarten, the whole school. The whole school, kindergarten to eighth grade. And so there were three of us in the fourth grade, which was one of the largest grades in the entire school. And there were also two kids in this school who were in special ed. And one of these girls became my dear friend. Um, she had physical and mental disabilities, 
but she taught me so much about the gift of laughter, um, being able to laugh at ourselves. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time connecting with her in our own way. I don't think other people really understood our relationship, our friendship, but it was, it had a profound impact on my life and the direction um, that I wanted to go. And, you know, she, um, she never used to play. She would stand by the teachers, you know, and I was the one that kind of nudged her along and, you know, would help hold her hands and we'd play two square with other people and we were a team and, you know, she would get laughing so hard she'd fall over it. It was, it was awesome. And, you know, one of my favorite memories was her mom let her come over to my house one day, which was huge. And I remember I had her on a sled and we'd spent the day playing on this golf course. You know, this is the White Mountains, New Hampshire. It's winter, snow. And then it was starting to get dark and I needed to get her home. And I put her in this sled. And as I would pull her, she would start laughing. And when she would laugh, she would turn into a noodle. <laughs> and when she turned into a noodle, she fell out of the sled. <laughs> and so I'm desperately trying to get her home before I get in trouble. It's because cycle. <laughs> yes. And as I was, you know, she would laugh more and she'd fall out. And it was just, it took forever to get her home. <laughs> but it's one of my fondest memories of her and just, you know, recognizing that gift that when we laugh, you know, even though it, she was late, it was impossible to not laugh with her. And so as I went forward on this journey of exploring architecture and having this relationship, this connection with Betsy, um, that really influenced my path. I always knew I wanted to design or be connected with design that embraced um, all ages and all abilities. You know, at one point I thought, well, I'll design schools for kids with special needs, you know, because that was where it started for me. Yeah. And then it's evolved. You know, I went to architecture school at the University of Oregon. And it wasn't a huge piece of me then, but actually um, I should back up because before I got into architecture school, I spent two years um, working as a substitute teacher in our local school district with special education. And so I spent time pushing wheelchairs. I spent time teaching kids how to navigate public transit. Um, I spent time changing diapers. I spent time doing toilet transfers, you know, for middle school and high school kids. I spent time really understanding how people with, I hate the word disabilities, but with different abilities, unique abilities, interact with their world and the environment, and also how we interact with other people interact with them. You know, when you're pushing a wheelchair through town, as the person pushing the wheelchair, I found that people don't look at the person in the wheelchair, nor do they look at the person pushing the wheelchair. And it can be incredibly isolating. And it's hard to feel connected when that's your experience. And so that experience taught me a lot. So, you know, when I got into architecture school, I had that awareness you know, when you're designing where the elevator goes and where the top of the stairs land in a public building, you know, you think about people arriving at the same place. And so after architecture school, I worked for a small firm in Eugene. And that wasn't the right fit for me. It was commercial and 
um, hospital work. And we were so disconnected from, I felt really disconnected from the people that we were creating the buildings for. And I think really my dream had always been residential, but I kind of had this belief that you really can't make money as a residential architect. Yeah. You know, very, you can't. Very common belief. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I had a class at the U of O that was a professional development class, and it was one of my favorite classes because it really taught you about how to become an architect. You know, once you get out of school, what do you have to do? What is this ARE and what are all the tests and how do you, you know, what does that path look like? And um, so during this class, one of the days, the professor was out of town and so we had to watch this movie. And this movie was on this firm in Minnesota and the presenter was Sarah Susanka. And she talked all about the structure of this firm, their firm and the fact that it was linear versus this hierarchy and they talked about their marketing strategies and all these other pieces and that they were actually um, successful as a residential firm and to me that was a huge you know I we had to write a paper about this interview and I remember just being incredibly excited about <laughs> this this new window that I was allowed to look through um, and see and so I actually followed this firm for two years while I was working in Eugene and graduating from school. And I was reading everything that I could find about them, um, about their model and about how they were making it work as, and not only work, but they were thriving as a residential firm. And so I, I found out that Sarah Sosenko was going to be a, a local um, da Vinci Days event in Corvallis, Oregon. And I went. And I went with a friend who was an engineer in our firm. And we waited in line. We were last in line for the book signing after her talk. And I just said, you know, I love what you do and what you're doing. And, you know, I would love to find out more about Sala. I would love, you know, and she just, she said, you need to contact Old Mulfinger. You know, yeah. this is, you know, at Sala, this is the path to to Sala, basically. And so it took me a couple weeks to get up the courage to call Sala <laughs> um, and to call Dale, you know, because that's who Sarah had told me to talk. And yeah. she actually had invited me to walk with her to her next event. And so we actually got to have this conversation and start, um, you know, that was my first introduction to her and uh, to knowing her personally. And yeah. so it was... Um, it was exciting because I'd been following her for so long. Just, just in case anybody doesn't know, I, and I, I'm sure everybody who's listening knows, but but uh, Sarah is the um, uh, the author of the Not So Big House series. Yes. Um, so that's yes. what she's famous for, other than being a partner at Sala and and doing this amazing architecture that she does. But she's globally known as the author of the Not So Big House series. Yes. And at that point, she had just written the first one. And she, I, when I met her, I found out she had just left Sala. <laughs> and so, um, and that was why she had suggested I, I contact Dale. So, you know, it's a couple of weeks later and I pick up the phone and my heart is racing. You know, I'm going to call Dale, you know, and it's, what do you say? You know, are you going to sound intelligent? You know, all of those worries, you know, this had been my dream for two years. And a part of a much bigger dream. And 
I remember like the person, the receptionist answered, asked my name, you know, must have paged him and said Stacia Hood or is on the phone. And he picked up the phone and he said, somebody sitting next to me wants to know why Stacia Hood is calling me or Stacia is calling me. <laughs> and totally threw me. Like it, that oh, you was had not, it all prepared. Yeah, you knew exactly what you're going to say. That wasn't yeah. part of it. So, and it's a long story short, it turns out that one of the guys that had been in my terminal studio, my final studio at the U of O, was sitting next to him when I called. And so he already had some insight into who I was before he picked up the phone. And, you know, within a couple months, I was there for an interview. And within a month, I had moved everything to Minnesota with my golden retriever. Um, I moved on 111, January 1st of 2001. I, I moved from Oregon to Minnesota by myself with my dog and landed in the frozen tundra. And they had just opened their Excelsior office. Um, and I was one of, I don't know, it was five or six of us at the time. And I got to sit next to Dale Mulfinger. And um, that was an amazing opportunity. Um, I I got to sit next to this person that had created this firm. You know, Dale and Sol Sarah had co-founded Solid together, and so I I more than once would <laughs> love to get Dale talking and to hear his stories, yeah. and he loved to tell them. Yeah, he's so a great storyteller. I I I met him once at at one of the AI conventions. Um, he was giving a a seminar and I, I attended it and, and then spoke to him afterwards. Very, very personable person, but a great storyteller. Yes. And he loves, he's, he's a mentor at heart and he loves to teach and he loves to help people understand about architecture and what architects do. And, you know, Solo was really founded on this idea of educating the public and homeowners about what do architects do and how they can serve homeowners, you know, and the value that they bring to a project. And that was a critical part of working at Solo was that outreach part in the community. Um, what were some of the things that they did in order to do that? Because that's, a, that's uh, a very common question at Entree Architect. That's something that architects struggle with all the time is, is how do we, um, how do we, communicate the value of architects to residential clients? You know, I think Dale and, you know, when Sarah had been at the firm had really kind of led that in their um, teaching classes at local um, art centers or community colleges or, you know, through continuing ed programs or, you know, Dale was just out there and he was also, you know, Minnesota Public Radio, you know, he was on that show and his books and doing book tours and um, Sala is a pretty prolific um, firm for uh, publishers, authors, yeah. um, you know, Sarah and her not so big house, but then Dale with his cabin and the getaway home and cabinology and, you know, he's working on another one now, but they, they've just been out there you know, interacting with the public and talking about architecture, you know, home and garden shows, doing presentations. And one of the ways that I um, was able to connect was I lived in a little town called St. Louis Park, which is a first string suburb of Minneapolis. And St. Louis Park had a program called Move Up in the Park. 
it was a fabulous program because the city actually paid for a two-hour consultation with an architect and as a way to get people within the community to invest in the infrastructure or the housing that they had um, in this first ring suburb. So I was given as the point person for that program. And so it got me out meeting with people and doing consultations and selling architecture, um, helping people understand that I had the solutions to their problems and that I could help them solve um, those, those challenges. So one of the things about working at Sala is that it was a huge fir- you know, firm recognized nationally. And so when projects came in with a with clients that were interested in accessibility, adaptability, universal design, um, it was known that that was an area of interest for me. And so I got a fair share of those types of projects handed to me um, with Dale. And so I actually you know, got to work on one project for clients that had severe chemical sensitivities and electromagnetic sensitivities. Um, I did a, you know, a home for some clients, husband had muscular dystrophy and the wife had cancer and a client whose son had, um, muscular dystrophy. And so I, I got, um, to recognize these clients and the needs that they were wanting. And a profound moment for me was a couple years ago, I went back and interviewed one of my clients and it was the client who, they were in their 70s when I did the house. He, he had had mus- he had muscular dystrophy. She had had a cancer. And I went back to speak to them as the architect, you know, post-occupancy. You know, how does your house work? Yeah. You know, how did we do? How is the roll-in shower? How do you like your elevator? You know, um, how is the trench drain working in the shower? <laughs> you know, those geeky architect pieces. And what was given to me at that experience was far beyond anything I imagined and has really shifted the trajectory of where I'm going now. Because what she gave me was the emotional pieces um, of what I had created and how it worked. And, you know, she loved the architecture. She didn't want to talk about the architecture. You know, we had created a space for caregivers and they had a caregiver because she had had a botched radiation treatment and it turned out that they were now both in wheelchairs. Her husband was now to the point where he was nonverbal in a power chair. And their, their goal, their dream was to stay in their homes because that's where their memories were and that's where they felt connected. And they lived on a lake and he had been an avid fisherman and so being connected to that lake was huge even though he was nonverbal and in a power chair. That was his quality of life, was that connection. And so while I'm there, you know, she asked to go speak in the in their bedroom away from where the caregiver was. And she started sharing the stories of the pieces that I hadn't known to help them understand that they were going to have to navigate. You know, what is it like hiring and firing a caregiver? You know, if you're a homeowner and want to stay in your home, um, are you going to be comfortable firing this person? Who gets to determine if you fire this person? What if one spouse loves the person and the other person doesn't? You know, how do you navigate these decisions? And how do you, yeah. And so what is it like to have another person living in your home and taking care of your spouse of 50 years? Are you going to be comfortable with that decision? And these are all a piece of this decision to live in our homes and stay in our homes as we age. You know, and she she talked 
about how much she loved her home, but the fact that she felt completely trapped in her home. She wanted to go play bridge with her friends, but she couldn't get in their home because she couldn't get up the stairs to get in there. And all of her friends were 70 plus and weren't able to lift her up into their homes for bridge. You know, she wanted to go to her sister's house for lunch, but she couldn't get in the front door. And so that's where I started recognizing that it isn't just about creating homes for ourselves that support us. It's we're all connected. We're all in relationship to other people. And so it's it's about creating homes that support and embrace all needs and all abilities because we don't know, one, if something may happen to us, and we don't know if maybe a loved one is going to want to come over for Thanksgiving dinner and is going to be in a chair. And can they get into our homes to visit us and to be a part of the family? You know, and so all of those pieces started it really opened my eyes to the reality that it isn't just about creating homes for our clients that come to us, but I'm really on a mission to create the bridge that connects people to what this approach to design look like, looks like and really why it matters to all of us and not just the clients that show up asking for it. Um, and so I've recognized that part of my job and part of where I'm going now is it's more about education and outreach and this, you know, I call this approach to design thrivable design and thrivable, creating thrivable homes. And my goal is to help people understand why it matters to create homes that are adaptable and accessible and visitable and sustainable um, so that they can be thrivable. And to me, that is being able to be supported in a way that we are each able to give our gifts to the world, whatever that unique thing is that's our individual um, superpower, our, you know, our own, yeah, our own gift. Let's take a quick break here to say thank you to FreshBooks for their support as a platform sponsor of Entree Architect, because as a platform sponsor, FreshBooks has provided funding and support for our overall mission here at Entree Architect, they recognize the need for small firms like us to build better businesses in order to be better architects. FreshBooks is the easy-to-use accounting software designed to help us small firm owners get organized, save time, and get paid faster. It takes care of invoicing, expense tracking, estimating, reporting, and it all happens out on the cloud so you have access to your information from anywhere that you have access to the internet. And I use FreshBooks for my own small firm, Five Cat Studio, and my favorite feature of the FreshBooks software is sending my invoices by email and allowing my clients to pay by credit card. When FreshBooks says that you'll get paid faster, they're not kidding. With the convenience of clicking a button and paying by credit card, many of my clients pay now as soon as they receive their invoice. And for those clients who don't pay right away, FreshBooks automatically sends them a reminder of the balance due at an interval that I set. So once I send an invoice, I can go back to being an architect and I don't need to chase down any of my clients. And Tim Lee of FreshBooks will show you how easy it is to send invoices by email on our exclusive video series, Tim and I produced exclusively 
for the Entree Architect community. Check out this free video series at entrearchitect.com slash freshbooksvideo. There's no catch. There's no email. It's completely free. Just go to entrearchitect.com slash freshbooksvideo and you will get the videos right away. There's three of them. Shows you everything you need to know about getting started. And then go to freshbooks.com slash architect, freshbooks.com slash architect and sign up for your free 30-day trial and give it a try. It's free. I suggest you just send one invoice and see what happens. That's how I got started. Just send one invoice to one client and see how it works. And when I did that and I got paid much faster than usual, I signed up for the rest of it and I set up my whole my whole account in FreshBooks. FreshBooks.com slash architect for your free 30-day trial. And be sure to enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. So you're no longer at Salah. I'm no longer at Sala. And you mentioned um, Thrivable Home. So so what happened there? You were inspired okay. by that client. And what yeah. how did how did you get to where you are now? I left Sala after my son was born. Um and I stepped into the role of bomb. And so I stepped away from architecture for seven years, eight years. And so part of where I've been the last few years is as a mom and as a female architect, um, how do I step back into architecture in a way that supports me as a mom and allows me to practice in a way that maybe I didn't recognize or see as an opportunity or even a possibility before? And so that's where I've been on this journey for the past three, four years, um, I, I ran into Sarah at the AIA convention in Denver, um, 2000. Yeah, that was three, three years ago. Yeah, 2013. Yeah. yeah. And I went to her with this idea that I was going to create an app. You know, I was going to connect the industry of universal design aging in place. And because one of the things I found, and also a piece of this, is I had an aunt who was diagnosed with ALS. And so I, I became aware of how does one navigate the industry when faced with a life altering diagnosis and at a time when you don't want to be remodeling your home you want to be focused on taking care of you know yourself and and living um that's when people are forced into this world that they're not familiar with contractors, builders, product manufacturers, wheelchair suppliers, you know, accessible vans, like it's, it's overwhelming. And so I went to Denver with this idea that I was going to connect the industry and build an app and create something that people could navigate um, all of the players and, and have an understanding. And Sarah looked at me and she's like, <laughs> yeah, you could do that. You know, or you could become the spokesperson for this type of design. And really, you know, I went to her with this idea of playing bigger than I ever had. Yeah. And she kind of like threw me up to the stars with this, you know, idea of where I could go. And at this point, she said, you know, I know you could hold an audience. I know you could, you know, public speaking. I know you. And it was like, at this point, I've never stood in front of an audience and spoken. You know? and yeah. So I also 
I have since teased her that, you know, maybe she needs to write the book, The Not So Small Life, because what she proposed <laughs> to me was anything but not so big. Um, but I've spent the last few years getting comfortable with how do I as an architect practice in a way that doesn't look like a traditional architectural practice. And so that's where Jonathan Fields and all of these other people start to come into my world. I... Um, I first attended a women's conference in Boulder, Colorado called Emerging Women. And it was all about feminine leadership, which as an architect, um, I was really good at playing the dude role, you know, because <laughs> you, you fit into this role of um, how do, yeah, I mean, it, the architectural industry is, is a male industry. And so this conference was a real eye-opener for me and the fact that I'd never really even heard the word feminine before and feminine leadership and <laughs> really um, opened my eyes to the fact that when, we, when women lead from a place of authenticity, that's when we're most effective. And that means embracing emotions and feelings and all of these things that I had really not wanted to admit existed in my life for the majority and, of and my And you're life. trained and you're trained as an architect to not go there. Right. Yeah. I mean you're trained to, to be very technical and professional and to not go after the emotional part of things. Yeah. And so where I'm going as an architect, you know, it's taken me a lot of time just to get comfortable with the fact that one, I'm I'm a, a female architect, and two, like I want to practice in a way that's non-traditional, and I want to talk about feelings and emotions and how our homes make us feel, and give people permission to dream and to think about what it's like, and to recognize that if we build our dream homes and we haven't done the emotional work and we move into our dream homes. We're taking all that emotional clutter with us and we're never going to learn how to just live and be and appreciate and enjoy that space that we created. So there are emotional and spiritual aspects to architecture that aren't a part of the traditional conversations. <laughs> you know, we talk about how we feel when we walk into a big space and a small space and, you know, that piece is there, but it isn't there for most homeowners. You know, that isn't something that they're taught. But I think as architects, we are. But it, it doesn't really go outside architecture school um, yeah. and how we connect and talk about architecture with homeowners. And that's what I think people are craving. Um, and so after Emerging Women, I, I then started hearing about different conferences and different events. And the next one I heard about was the World Domination Summit, which is in Portland, Oregon. yeah. yeah. And explain, also, what, explain what that is, because that sounds like a very ominous. Yeah, uh, it's it's not the world dominatrix. It's not, you know, <laughs> right. it's, it's it's about um, I tell people it's 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 all the, the good superheroes coming together that want to create positive change in the world. And so it's. It's the dreamers that all from around the world that all come together in one place and. You know, one of the things that Chris Gillibo, who's the founder of WDS, World Donation Summit, says is, you know, the first year I was there, he got on stage and the first thing he said was, how do we live a remarkable life in a conventional world? And oh, 
it was at this event that I, I met, you know, Chris Ducker and I started connecting with this idea of blogging and podcasting and, you know, ways that I could reach people outside the traditional um, ways that architects have, you know, that there's this world of entrepreneurship and people are doing things in really unique ways and they're making money doing it. And so I went thinking that there's like a path, like you just have to figure out where do you get on the path. Right. Give me the book. Give me the guide. Give me the book <laughs> and you do this, you do this, you do this, and then you make money and then you do this. And there is no book. And it's really about connecting to yourself, connecting to your passion, connecting to what's really important to you. And then what do people that you what do the people who you want to serve need? And creating that bridge and connecting it. And so at this event, again, I I met Jonathan Fields. And I got to talk to him briefly. And I, I told, at this point, I'm looking for people to help me build my app. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, you know, you could create it. And you could create this app. You could create this really... Um, successful business but what if you find out you don't like the people you know that you're serving what if you find out that you know where you get isn't actually where you wanted to go and I kind of say he picked me up and pulled me back and kind of dropped me in he was so right is you have to really because at this point with this app idea I didn't have that awareness of who are the people I want to serve and what do they need and it's crucial to have that understanding of who is your client. Um, and it's something that Sala did really well. You know, they knew their clients and they knew their clients' needs. And one, I don't, one funny story from Sala. When Sarah and Dale first started Sala, they started going to home and garden shows and setting up their booth. And they were one of the first firms to do this. And Somebody came by and said, you know, so what are you giving away? And they didn't have anything, you know. And so this guy gave them some advice. Well, you know, you do a drawing and, and then everybody wins, you know. And you, so they did this. And I don't remember the number, but I want to say it was like 200 people put their information into their, you know, box. And it took them months and months <laughs> to go through and do these two-hour consultations that everybody had won. But what happened is, is they actually got to really know and talk to and have conversations with these people that they wanted to serve. And they planted more seeds than I think they could ever understand in every one of those conversations. Because they, maybe one of the people they talked to didn't actually do a project, but maybe one of their friends called them and said, hey, we want to do this project, you know, an architect, or what should we do? You know, and then they can say, hey, I just had this architect that came and talked to me a year ago. You know, they were great. I think you should. And so one thing Sala taught me is that every conversation we have plants a seed. You know, it's you never know um, what's going to come from and result from these, you know, as we share our ideas. Um, so where was the shift from the app? To not that, the app, because you you actually, which is very interesting, because you talked about how Jonathan said, "Well, what if you get there and it's not where you want to be?" That happened to you at Sala, 
right? You, yeah. you, you dreamed of going to Sala. You, you went there, you worked there, you loved it. And then you decided you're going to leave. Um, so yeah. how did, how did that comment from Jonathan, uh, affect your decision going forward with, with the idea of the app? It really got me to start questioning. I, I can be a bit over-focused at times. You know, it's like I decided in the second grade I was going to become an architect. Right. And, and I think and the that blinders went on, right? The blinders yep. went on. I had the same experience. And I think architecture is a part of what I'm doing, but I don't think it's... So even when I worked at Solo, which was one of my dream jobs, you know, like working at Solo was the end, you know, of where I thought I needed to go. And I got there and I loved it. And I loved sitting next to Dale and asking him questions and picking his brain and the conversations. I mean, I that was awesome and amazing. And the clients were incredible. And working at Sala, I worked directly with clients. You know, Dale wasn't involved in the project, but I, I was given a lot of responsibility and learned a lot because of that. You know, I would at one point was working on eight projects at a time. You know, that's, and I had students working under me. And so, but it wasn't, it wasn't where I came alive. Sitting at my drafting board drawing or at my computer was kind of torture for me because I am very much an introvert and maybe actually more an ambivert because I also need to be able to have conversations and to move and to walk around. And so sitting was, was not my <laughs> strength. I loved going out and talking to clients and I loved selling architecture and I loved that more active part of architecture. And so actually while I was working at Sala, I was also working as a server in a restaurant, a Mexican restaurant, because that gave me that ability to move and to talk to people that I also needed. And so taking the blinders off, you know, I forced myself into this place of discomfort what am I doing? Where am I going? What does this look like? And I don't have the answers because what I'm creating doesn't exist. And you've and spent your entire life to become an architect. You, since you were in second grade, yes. you were an architect and you were an architect, an architect all those years to the point where you worked everything, all your goals, all your focus was on becoming an architect. You became the architect and now you are where you are. And yeah. And now you're looking bigger. You're looking beyond being an architect. Architecture is part of it, but yeah. it's not your purpose. No. And so this is where, you know, I've just been on this journey of meeting these amazing, inspiring people. And so at this event that I got to talk to Jonathan, I found out that he was going to be running this summer camp. And in my head, it was like, I have to go to summer camp. Like I want to go to this event. It was an entrepreneurial camp and it was workshops about business and how to create an Instagram following and how to do all these different things. You know, there are all these different workshops. Um, and it was Jonathan Fields, a good life project. And, you know, it was a hell yes inside of me. And yet as a mom, you know, it was how in the hell do I take more time to go to summer camp? Right. And a couple of weeks later, I was in the car and my son was in the back seat, who at the time was 
I don't know, six or seven. And his friend was sitting next to him and they were talking. And my son said, you know, when you get to be about 16 or 17 or 18, you have to quit playing and you have to start, you have to find a job and you have to start working. And that to me was a, oh, hell no moment. (laughs) No, 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 no. Um, And it was that realization of, I have to go to summer camp because I have to teach my kids that we have to continue to play. And we have to continue to embrace our curiosity. And and so I signed up for camp. And when I got to camp, there was a talent show. And I just kind of knew I had to get on stage and talk because what other opportunity is given to you like that for public speaking? And I remember I went up to the woman who was taking information about people that wanted to be in the talent show. And I just, I said, I'm going to talk about my hidden talent of public speaking. I had no clue what I was going to talk about. And I don't have some hidden talent of public speaking. (laughs) (laughs) And she looked at me kind of sideways, like, what in the hell are you talking about? But she wrote my name down. And then there was a woman at camp, Marsha Shandor, who had offered to help coach me on a talk. And she and I spent the day talking about this story of me as a gymnast and it just wasn't landing with me of what I needed to really say. And so the morning of the talent show, I woke up and I still didn't know what I was going to talk about on stage in front of 300 people who I highly admired. Um, you know, John Lee Dumas was in the audience. Um, Scott Dinsmore, Jonathan Fields, like these are people that I had looked up to were going to be sitting there and listening to me. And I didn't know what I was going to talk about. And then the story of my clients from Minnesota came to me. And that story of having gone and visited them and the lessons they gave me. And I, I ended up I wrote down some ideas and what I was going to talk to and some framework of just some basic bullet points of their story. And I called a friend and I went into the woods. It was raining. And I just started talking through this speech. And I skipped the evening sessions. And, you know, before the talent show, Marsha and I stood outside and did the Amy Cuddy power poses. And, you you know, when I was still standing as the next person to go up in this talent show, I still really didn't know what I was going to say. And I remember the woman standing next to me, Shelly looked at me and she's like, you're not breathing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I got up on stage and I have to say, like, I'm thinking camp talent show, this is going to be some hokey fun, you know? And all I can say is I would have paid to have seen the seven acts that were before me. And the evening ended out with, I mean, the amount of talent that was at this camp was unbelievable and mind-blowing. But I got on stage and I did it. And I told my story. And that was a huge hurdle for me because I had this story of, I don't know how to be a public speaker. I've never done it before. And so I got home from camp. And the next day, I found out that I had met all the certifications to become a certified aging and place specialist through the National Association of Home Builders, that I had met all the requirements. And um, and then I looked it up, and I realized that I'm the first architect in the state of Oregon with that certification at the time. And that was a, you know, that was a really um, exciting, special moment for me. 
And then the next day I got a phone call from a woman that I had spoken with at a bike race that wanted to know if I was still doing this type of architecture about um, people in their homes and aging. And I said, yes. And she said, well, I work for the local hospital and we have a fall prevention event coming up and we'd like you to come and be a presenter. And I can tell you that had I not gone to camp and had I not gotten up on stage and had I not had the certification that came through that said I was qualified, I would have said no. But all of those things aligning, it was a hell yes. Yeah. And so I went to this event and I, re- I showed up. I talked to people. Um, and I, I left thinking, I don't know that anything's going to come of this, but we'll see. And I got an email the next day from a woman I had spoken to who was a part of a group of women in Eugene called the Fairy Godmothers. And I had had a conversation with her about a vision boarding workshop I had taken at camp. And she said, you know, I think there's, you have something to teach us, this group. And I'd like to know more about this type of architecture that you do. And I'd also like to do, you know, something with vision boarding. And that was where I started to realize that she gave me what I had been trying to work towards. And what what am I creating? Um, I want to talk about and teach people about this type of architecture. And I didn't know the format to do it in. And so I actually created this workshop for them that was all about what does this type of design look like? How do we create beautiful homes that support people through all stages of life? How do we... Um, how do we continue to dream? And I showed them images of, you know, what does this type of design look like? And we talked about grab bars and, you know, I really want to make grab bars sexy and desirable, you know, and shift how people (laughs) see them and push the envelope on all of these parts of thrivable design, creating a thrivable home. But when I got done with teaching them, then I led them through a vision boarding workshop, which was really I instructed them to create these boards that I gave them architectural magazines and yoga magazines and asked them to focus on what, how they wanted to feel in their homes and what were images that they thought were beautiful and that they could dream. And it gave them a tangible place to put their dreams. And the boards they created blew me away. They were beautiful. And as an architect, I realized if a client brought a board like that to me, there was so much information on those boards that I think we as architects already resonate with and understand. Um, I realized it was a powerful tool. And so as I'm going forward now, where I'm focusing is creating, I'm calling it a living document. Um, And I'm still in the process of creating it. But it's design questionnaires. It's stories of me as an architect and the clients I've worked with. It's images of what this can look like. It's vision boarding exercises on how to create a vision board and giving people a place to dream. And it's talking about why it's important to keep dreaming. And you're creating creating this platform, right? This is the Thrivable Home is your platform. That's, That's the... Uh, that's where you're going. That's where you go now to learn about yes. this this um, thrivable design. It's essentially universal design for the masses, right? I mean, it's the intent is yeah. to bring universal design to everyday design. 
Um, yeah. Much like architects now design uh, sustainably. That years ago, you know, 15, 20 years ago, sustainable design was its own thing. And you sort of plugged it in and applied it as necessary. Some clients wanted it and you would, okay, I would, we'll do it plug in the sustainable design into your architecture. But today, architects really design every design with sustainability, or, or most do anyway, with the intent of making it a sustainable project. That's how we do it. We no longer look at ourselves as a sustainable architect or trying to plug in these pieces. We just design it that way. It's just good design. And I think we look at your um, your projects and your platform the same way, that that every project should be designed universally. Every project should be designed in a way that everybody can use it. Um, and uh, the Thrivable Home is the place where you're going to uh, spread the word about this, both to architects and to um, the, you know, the global population uh, of humanity who need to know these things. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's a great place to be. Yeah. I also think that the industry is a little bit upside down and backwards with this idea of like aging in place. Um, and I, I really believe that when we design well for a five-year-old, you know, it'll work for a 105-year-old yeah. or an 85-year-old. And so what I've found too is that when we shift this idea of creating homes that support five-year-olds or two-year-olds or pushing strollers or we then create these homes that support whole life design, and it's a much bigger platform. And it shifts the energy to something that's much more playful versus something that feels fear-based of you don't want to fall. And so that's kind of where I'm going with Thrivable Home now, too, is um, embracing that playful part of what this approach to design can look like and helping people understand what it looks like and how to implement it in your home. You know, even if you're just buying a refrigerator, what do you think about you know, French doors with the freezer on the bottom, you know, I mean, it's much easier for a kid to open. It's much easier for an elderly person to open. It's much easier for somebody in a chair to open, you know, and so it's starting to talk about these tangible little things that people can do, even if they don't want to remodel their entire home, to start to implement the ideas of creating a thrivable home. And I really want to create the market for architects, you know, to, um, my goal isn't sitting down as an architect and drawing. It's it's creating clients for other architects. Yeah, it it's uh, you you've been on a long journey, and, yes. and it sounds like you're really just at the beginning. Yes, <laughs> you know I'm you, just getting started. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just told us your whole origin story. It's as as expected. It was the entire episode. Yeah, um, it is a great story, um, but it's really just the beginning the beginning of Thrivable Home and where it's going to go. So I, I highly recommend that listeners go to thrivablehome.com. That's right, right? Yep. Thrivablehome.com and go check out what you're doing. Um, learn what you have to offer. Um, Stacia, thank you very much for your service to this profession and, and what you're doing, um, sp spreading the word about what you're doing and being an inspiration to others for doing that. Thank you. I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you being here. Like I said, your corner of the internet is thrivablehome.com. Um, before we wrap up, I want to uh, ask you our one final question. Um, what is the one thing that small firm architects can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? The one thing that 
I've learned from my experience is to just start talking to people, telling your stories, talking about where your passion lies, talking about what you're curious about, um, and following your curiosity. You know, that's, it's, it starts with a conversation. It, it may be very, you may be surprised at where it leads. Yes, because other people will, will start to, to give you pieces of the puzzle um, as, as you, yeah, yeah, are all, all along the journey. You I can... totally agree. I mean, the, 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 the only way Entree Architect has grown into what it is today is through those connections that, you know, reaching out and meeting people and talking about my passion. Um, that's how we've grown. And, and you're doing the same thing. And that's, that's great advice to, uh, to know what your passion is, you know, try to figure that out. That's not an easy thing to do. I mean, it took you your whole life to get to this point. Yeah. Um, but you've, you've discovered this, this is your purpose, you know, and the same thing happened with me with Entree Architect. This is my purpose. I'm still an architect. I love architecture. I had the blinders on. I became an architect because I had those blinders on, but I, I'm, I would never regret it. I love it, but it, it brought me to where I am today helping other people be more successful and happier. And you're doing the same thing. So thank you very much for, for sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. And I can't wait to, to see the next uh, chapter of your journey. Thank you for having me. Complete show notes and a direct link to download this episode will be found at entrearchitect.com slash episode 136. So what's your story? What's your plan? Is your career as an architect working out the way you had dreamed? If not, I suspect it may be your struggle with business. I know because I work with and I speak to hundreds of architects just like you every year. That's why we created Entree Architect Academy. It's an educational program with monthly business training from top experts teaching us what we need to know to live that life we've dreamed. It's a thriving community of passionate, supportive, small firm entrepreneur architects just like you. I want you to succeed and live that life of your dreams. Enrollment for Entree Architect Academy is now open. Come join us and build a better business. Visit EntreeArchitect.com for more information. It's all right there on the homepage, EntreeArchitect.com. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I am an entrepreneur architect. I encourage you to find the work that you want and live that life you'll love. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening this week. Have a great one. mentioned it to my family but in terms of telling people like oh yeah we're doing this i'm looking for projects you got anything yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me dreaming of launching your own architecture firm well, well buckle up for a wild ride with emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm
where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. (laughs) So for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.